This is an ABC podcast. The Insurance Council of Australia warns Australians about buying property in a flood zone. But for this Queensland woman buying a house with river views for under 300000 was a no-brainer. actually couldn't believe it. <laughs> I, I really thought um, I was going to head up into the 300000s to find anything decent that I wanted. And we hear how this Gold Coast woman didn't know about her Aboriginal heritage until she was 80. Mum said I thought he was sunburned. She didn't think he was Aboriginal. I don't think he told her he was Aboriginal at the time. I think he's a bit worried about them taking the children or letting people know. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadja country. After a summer of floods and the declaration of another La Nina, the idea of buying a house in a flood zone may seem absurd. But in central Queensland, areas notorious for flooding are still attracting plenty of buyers who think it's worth taking the risk to buy an affordable home. This report from Rachel McGee. Stunning river views, a double-storey home and a large block, all for under $300,000. Some would say you're dreaming. I- actually couldn't believe it. <laughs> I, I really thought um, I was going to head up into the 300,000s to find anything decent that I wanted. But this is the reality for Tanya Wiseman, who bought her Rockhampton home earlier this year for a bargain price. But that affordability comes with a catch. It's in Depot Hill, a suburb notorious for flooding. The view straight away, it just struck me and I thought, wow, I, I could really see myself living here and and um, had a lot to consider then, knowing that it was in a flood zone as well. After speaking with the former owners who lived through five floods, Ms Wiseman decided she can handle another one if she has to. She says the home is also designed to withstand flooding and has survived for 75 years. Um, Even the last owners who I've managed to be able to speak to said they didn't even get a flood for 20 years. So, you know, um, and even the way that they've built the house and rigged things up here... Um, it's uh, it's designed for when a flood happens and so things are easily moved up quickly. Um, <clears throat> the whole area underneath is built so it can just be hosed out and gurneyed out and they said it took less than half a day to clean up after a flood. So for the amount of risk compared to a, a lovely lifestyle on the river was it negated it. They've actually put all the electrics and all the power up high so even underneath the house all the power points are up high so they can't be touched by flood water. Everything's above ground. They've um, put platforms underneath where you can just raise up furniture and so forth um, during it and they really said it wasn't a problem. Real estate in Institute of Queensland Zone Chair Noel Livingston says Ms Wiseman is one of many choosing Depot Hill over other parts of the city in the current market. It's being reflected in the market too, with property prices rising by 25.2% over the past year, according to realestate.com. I think it becomes an option now the way the market's gone because of its affordability. Look, we all know Depot Hill's got some flood issues, but they're issues that we have a strong history of and we know the levels that floods are going to get to within a week out from the measurements at Riversley. So it really becomes a good option for those. Depot Hill becomes in their price bracket. The way the prices have increased across the board, the cost of renting is becoming really prohibitive to some people. So low-cost housing is becoming very much a flavour.
river around town. So The Insurance Council of Australia is warning anyone looking to buy in a flood zone should do their research. It's always important that people understand the risks of the property that they're looking to purchase. This involves potentially speaking to your local council to understand what kind of flood risk is, appro- is relevant for the property that you're looking to buy but also understanding what the costs associated with owning that property would be. One of those costs, obviously, is the price of insurance. So we would um, suggest that one quick way to evaluate that is to go online and do a quote for the property that you're looking to purchase to understand what those inherent costs are going to be year on year to insure your property if it is in a flood zone. Insurance Council of Australia Chief Operating Officer Kylie McFarlane ending that story from Rachel McGee in Rockhampton. You're listening to ABC Australia-Wide. To WA now, where today the first regional public meetings of an inquiry into agricultural safety have been held in Albany. The state's WorkSafe Commissioner, Darren Kavanagh, announced the inquiry in June following the industry's 12th death in 12 months. Since this announcement, there's been two more farming deaths. Mark Bennett is our reporter in Albany and he's been following the story. Mark, what happened today at the meeting? Well, this was the first meeting of a series of meetings that uh, Pam Scott, who is an independent uh, and a former Industrial Relations Commissioner for 25 years, she's been appointed as the independent inquirer to hold these meetings. She's making her way around to a number of communities in WA, really what the safety performance of the agricultural industry in WA is because there have been a shocking number of deaths she started by trotting out some pretty sobering figures saying that since July 2017 up until June this year, there's been 39 fatalities in agriculture, fishing and forestry and 23 out of those are, were fatalities at work. Um, WA is not the worst state. New South Wales, Queensland and Victoria do have higher numbers of farm deaths but WA is Per head of population, WA's figure is nothing to be proud about. Um, and 91% of them are men, and half of all those deaths are people aged over 55. And, and, and drilling down even further, a significant number of those are men who are 65 and over. So age is a big factor. Now, that has really led into the discussion about the culture, attitudes, and behavior of people working on farms. Construction and mining have have been able to reduce worker fatalities. Could the agriculture and farming sector learn from that? Look, they certainly can, and that certainly came up as a point, um, but it was very quickly pointed out by um, most of the people in the crowd that the mining model is a very hard one to get to fit, and it's the same with the construction industry model you have a different corporate culture, you have more people available to supervise, you have ticketing and licensing arrangements to use certain types of machinery. That is just not working as far as farming is concerned because many people are doing multitasks using many different pieces of equipment. You said that the statistics show that it tends to be older farmers, particularly those at 60 and above, and that there's cultural issues there in terms of wearing seatbelts, etc., etc. What about younger generation farmers? Are you hearing from any younger farmers about how they feel about the safety of themselves and their workers on their farms? 
Well, that was quite an interesting angle to the story, Sinead, because um, many of the younger farmers um, are, are meeting their partners who might be working in allied industries like health or safety or, you know, working in, in nearby hospitals or have worked in corporate industry where they have been imbued with a sense of safety and understanding about danger. And it is those partners that are kind of re-educating and bringing in a different cultural set of thinking that is where those changes are starting because, you know, those are born and brought up and have lived on the farm all their life and maybe well into their, you know, what we would consider retirement age and still working. Um, uh, they're the ones that are resistant to change. So, yes, it's it's the young ones that are, are taking this far more seriously. Mark Bennett in Albany, thanks for talking to Australia Wide. This is ABC Australia Wide. And you're with me, Sinead Mangan, to Queensland's Sunshine Coast, where a native bloom has emerged as a sought-after skincare ingredient, creating a new reason to farm the plant in Australia. Big red kangaroo paws have long been prized by florists for their striking appearance. But now the flowering spikes are being used by more than 30 global skincare brands for their skincare properties. Jennifer Nichols has the story. As the rising sun clears away the morning mountain mist, long rows of striking big red kangaroo paw plants in full bloom are revealed. So these are the stems that we cut because they're ready to cut. You can see the stem is nice and solid and firm. Lodi and Yucca Palmea used to grow native Australian flowers for the ornamental market. Now the looks of these kangaroo paw flowers no longer matters. It's what's inside that counts. If they've got a bird bite, we think, OK, the birds know that's a good stem. We should just follow them, right? So then we take that stem as well. These plants are now a prized ingredient in anti-wrinkle creams. Just to help older people look a bit younger, I guess. <laughs> I could do with some of that. Extra firming skin cream it's skin for, but they now have multiple customers for this extract. On the day I visited, a high-ranking executive from their biggest customer had travelled from France, accompanied by his Australian partners, to inspect top-of-the-range flowers at Curramore near Mullaney. Well, I think it's a great honour for us. You know, we've been working hard for this to get this sort of recognition and now that these people are keen to come and have a look to see what we're doing to confirm that we're growing things the way we say we are. Uh, my name's Marty Short. I'm the Technical Director of Southern Cross Botanicals, which is a business that specialises in the development of Australian native botanical products for the global cosmetics industry. Our business has about 14 employees. I'd say 95% of our business is actually export to the major brands in both Europe and the US, but we're also in pretty much every single global territory, including Asia and Africa. Me personally, I've been in the role for about a decade. Um, it started off as a small family business that was then acquired by a French cosmetics company called Lucas Meyer Cosmetics. And then that company was acquired by International Flavours and Fragrances. You look at the kangaroo paws here around us, they're so beautiful, but I hadn't really thought about the cosmetic qualities of them. What is it about the kangaroo paw that makes it special? This particular plant improves a cellular 
pathway within the skin to upregulate the expression of collagen and elastin. We've got a patent on the product. Uh, we weren't the only company to discover just how effective it is. All of our customers have then run their own trials on this product and have found similar results. The big results are a reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. We were screening a whole series of Australian native plants. This particular plant came across my bench and I entered it into the trial and fortuitously we'd also submitted the product to a major global brand Clarins that also ran a similar trial and both research departments found very, very similar results and then it, things just snowballed from there. I imagine that this particular ingredient's in at least 30 to 50 brands globally. What other native Australian botanicals have you been using? Oh, we've got quite a vast array of Australian botanicals from kakadu plum to caviar lime to Tasmanian pepperberry. Um, I'd say we've commercialised close to 30 different Australian native botanicals, uh, creating grower networks, creating viable agricultural models for farmers who are looking to stay on the land and create value in what they're doing. And you've got quite strict standards, so you're expecting a fully organic product here so that there's no nasty is going onto people's skins at the end yeah, of it. Yeah, correct. It's very much a marketing pivot that you'll find in the cosmetics industry. It's a pressing topic, sustainability and also healthy, true-to-nature type products. You know, it didn't make a great deal of sense for Lodi at the time to transition into organic agriculture because of the costs associated with it. But then once he saw the business potential for us to sell organic product, he made that transition and that's reflected in the price that we're prepared to pay for the ingredient off him because there's obviously higher labour inputs to achieve organic certification. The demanding process of going organic took Lodi and Yakapamea three years to complete. Secure contracts have meant they've been able to employ two people with disabilities to hand weed the farm instead of using chemicals. And I think that gives us a bit of a thrill and a bit of uh, enjoyment and it gives us a little bit more flexibility in our time off and it works well for our business as well. And now they're value-adding by processing the plants on the farm. Look at the temperature. Are you ready for this? 49.4 degrees Celsius. warm in here. This is our first season that we're going to be doing the drying and the milling. Last year we did the shredding and a different company then freeze dried it but they have found from some trials that we did earlier that doing it all straight on the spot does provide better levels of actives for them so they're very happy that we're going to be able to do it on the farm. It's amazing to think that what you produce here on your farm at Curramore outside Mullaney is used in some of the top brands right around the world. Well, we just think of all those lovely ladies out there and gentlemen too that are using our product and making them feel better about themselves and I think it's our little contribution to the world. That's pretty fabulous. Lodi Permaya from Top of the Range Flowers speaking there with Jennifer Nichols and I reckon she was giving that cream a crack after being in that hot room. ABC Australia Wide. The love of cycling and history is bringing people together in Rockhampton for the Gentlefolk Single Speed Fixie and Old Bike Society Group. As the name suggests, the group is all about having fun, with one member boasting a large vintage bike collection in nearby Mount Morgan that he wants to turn into a museum to encourage more local tourism. Katrina Bevan headed along on one of the group's recent bike rides to find out more. 
It's a late, mild spring afternoon in Rockhampton and Warren Royal is getting ready to take his almost century-old bike out for a spin. In the late 60s when my grandfather died, my parents were going to put this in the dump and I said, no, 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 you don't. So I took it home and hung it up in the shed and about, about seven or eight years ago I pulled it down and made sure it worked again. So It was built new in 1923 hasn't changed. Have you had to do much to it to get it to... Tyres. That's all. Anything. No, tyres only. Yeah, a bit of oil. He doesn't get to ride the bike too often, but thanks to a rather unique local cycling group, he's ready to tour the city centre's historical buildings and laneways. We were learning the history of Rockhampton, and I'm a real old Rocky lover. It's good fun to get out because we normally go and have a meal afterwards. Organiser Peter Kane knows the Gentlefolk Single Speed Fixie and Old Bike Society is a mouthful, but that's half the fun. Well, I have trouble saying the name sometimes, it's so long. But the name, the name sort of says it all, like it's just meant to be fun, right? So it's just meant to be fun. Yeah. You've actually got to get a special permission from Facebook to have a name that long on the, on, on the page. <laughs> Peter says the group began in 2015 and then expanded. And our intention is to, uh, to have fun and to take those old bikes that are in the shed out and give them a, give them a whirl. You know, we've got one rule, no lycra. <laughs> yeah, we started out with a couple of us trying to be cool dudes riding our fixies around town. And then people said, well, I haven't got a fixie, but I've got an old bike. So we, we, we extended the name to the Gentlefolk Single Speed Fixie and Old Bike Society. When we introduced old bikes, it became a bit of a history lesson. So people wanted to match their old bikes up with old things in Rockhampton. So each ride's got a theme. Everyone is encouraged to bring their oldest bike along, even if it was only bought six months ago. Attendee Zara Lee Goodson purchased her modern penny farthing just last year. It's a lot of fun, gets a lot of attention, and um, especially in the group like this where yeah, everyone just riding something different. Actually, it's very easy to ride. It's just about the um, dismounting and um, getting on it in the first place. Um, once you're on it, it's actually very balanced and very easy to ride. So I have a lot of different bikes as well. So I have uh, penny farlings and I have um, recumbent bicycles and tricycles and normal bicycles. But we are, I ride practically every single one of them and every single one of my bikes has got a different group and different um, collective with it. So um, And everyone supports each other in cycling. So we all have a lot of fun. It's very inclusive. It's one of many cycle appreciation groups continuing to pop up across the state, especially in regional areas with rich cycling histories. That's according to Andrew Demack with Bicycles Queensland. From the seat of a bicycle, you, you have a, a social time with your friends as you go for a ride, and that can take all sorts of expressions. That could be mountain biking, that could be racing on the road, that could be a gentle spin along the banks of the Fitzroy River with your with your friend who's got a penny farthing. So there's all sorts of different ways that people are experiencing riding a bike. And that only is growing, I think, in Queensland because there's many more opportunities to experience your bike riding in different ways. Graham Mead from Mount Morgan agrees. He boasts a vintage collection so large, he doesn't know exactly how many are in it. But he thinks it's somewhere between 50 and 100. I've got some bikes that are fully restored and very good condition and I've got some bikes that are just rusty frames that need to have, you know, all that I need to collect things for and build up. Yeah, a lot of it is the story behind the bikes. Graham began collecting bikes 20 years ago while living and working in Brisbane. 
The collection is diverse, ranging from a 1930s unicycle to 1980s road bikes, 1990s mountain bikes, roadster-style bikes from the 1940s, 50s and 60s, and includes a bike owned by famous cyclist Phil Anderson. Graham hopes to open a museum for the bikes to try and bring more tourism to Mount Morgan, which has struggled through drought in recent years. Mount Morgan has sort of been you know, on its back for a long time, and it's just another little thing to try and encourage people to come up, have a drive around. There's you know, plenty of nice old pubs to have a feed in and stuff like that. Graham Mead, Mount Morgan business owner with an impressive vintage bike collection, ending that story from Katrina Bevan. And finally to the Gold Coast, where a chance meeting at a senior's craft class has proved life-changing for 90-year-old Auntie Barbara. She grew up knowing she was Indigenous, but it was never discussed. Now, Auntie Barbara proudly boasts a certificate she got proving her descent, and younger Indigenous people are helping her discover more about her culture. Cathy Border has more. Soon to turn 91, Auntie Barbara is a proud Wiradjuri woman. But finding out about her Indigenous history on her father's side has been a long time coming. She knew she was Indigenous, but it was never discussed. Mum said I thought he was sunburned. She didn't think he was Aboriginal. I don't think he told her he was Aboriginal at the time. Uncle Alf was a big, tall, Aboriginal-looking man. My father was more like his father, which was English. I think it just grew up that I knew I was Aboriginal, but we didn't talk. I don't think he talked to people about because he worked for Goldsborough Mort. I think he was a bit worried about them taking the children or letting people know. A chance encounter later in life at a craft class on the Gold Coast led her on a path to Calwyn, who provide cultural, health, family and housing support for the Indigenous and Torres Strait communities. I never put in a claim that I was Aboriginal till after my husband died. Then I met an Aboriginal woman. She said to me, one day she came, I was at the craft doing craft with her, and I said, what nationality are you? And she said, oh, I'm Aboriginal. But I didn't notice she had a jumper on with the flag on it. Like, I don't know why. She was horrified to think I said what <laughs> And so how long I ago? Said, well, my father was Aboriginal. And then she said, you should go to Calwyn. That's why I went to Calwyn. I've been going there about nine years since then. So how long ago was it that your husband died and you got that certificate? Oh, 11 years. Then, finally official. The certificate confirming Auntie Barbara provided sufficient evidence proving her Aboriginal descent. I think that's the real one, but see, I got water on it. and It's got the year. It must have the year. 2013 there. So this certificate is confirming your yeah, Indigenous, you're, you're identifying as an Aboriginal person. Indigenous there. But well. this is, you were 81 when you got this. Yes, yes. Because that's first I went to Calwyn. That's how I didn't know there was anywhere like Calwyn. So what and does this certificate mean to you? 
Oh, is it important? Yeah, yes, important, and I think it, my father would be very happy. At Calwoon, the ages unite. Younger Indigenous people like Lelania Tusa are helping elders like Auntie Barbara learn even more about their culture and ancestry. I um, didn't realise that there were people like Auntie Barbara and others around that um, weren't, did not know a lot about their cultural heritage, their First Nations um, side because of our history and because of the fear of children being taken with the assimilation policies. So, um, and that's filtered down from generation after generation. Aunty Barbara, who's now 90? 91, sir. 91. Oh, 91. Almost 91 in November. And, and has been on a long journey. And so being able to help not just Aunty Barbara, but other people here on the Gold Coast to try and link them up in whatever way that I can through um, anything with their cultural identity is really fulfilling for me to be able to do that. That was Auntie Barbara you heard chatting there to our reporter, Cathy Border. And that's Australia-wide for this Tuesday. Remember, you can podcast this show whenever you want to. So just go to your favourite podcast app or to the Listen app, type in Australia-wide and hit subscribe when you get there. And if there's anything happening in your neck of the woods, you can always email us as well on australiawide.radio at abc.net.au. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.